I'm going to tell you about the discourse of the Buddha, which in the Pali Canon takes a very special place. It's of the utmost importance in the Pali Canon on which Theravadan Buddhism is based. From the papers that you have filled out, I have seen that you have had contact, practically everyone, maybe two people, not with Buddhism in its various forms. This one is Theravadan based on the Pali Canon. And one of the discourses in it, it contains 17,500 discourses. And one of them is considered to be especially important. So I'll tell you its framework and then as the week goes on, we'll discuss each point, each point as far as our own practice is concerned. The Buddha's injunction was in Pali, Pariyati Patipati, which means study and practice, both. Which also means calm and insight, both the mind which becomes tranquil to the point where it can be so absorbed that it reaches different levels of consciousness which we will discuss in great detail later on and insight where we can see absolute truth rather than relative truth. So with study and practice we will, in these few days, practice our meditation naturally, but also get a little bit of a view of what the Buddha was talking about to his monks and nuns and lay people. He certainly talked to anyone who was interested. Most of the time, he answered questions. So although we're going to keep noble silence, as you must all know already, you will have any number of occasions to ask questions. Every time after I finish talking, it's time for you to ask questions if you have any. And of course, you're going to have also your personal discussions with me where you can ask as many questions as you wish. This particular discourse of the Buddha is called the Ratavinita Sutta. The word Sutta just means discourse. Literally translated, it means the thread. One can say that it is the thread on which the pearls of wisdom of the Buddha are threaded, or the thread which goes through the discourse. The Ratavinita means the relay coaches, the seven relay coaches. And the whole of a very fat book, a commentary, the Sudhimaga, the path of purification, is based on then that one discourse. 
It's one of the most important commentaries that we have. goes into the utmost detail of how to do what, why, and when. It couldn't be more detailed. And it's all based on one discourse of the Buddha. It was written in the 5th century by Buddha Gosa, and it is considered to be also canonical. Now this Vatavinita Sutta starts out with the Buddha asking some of the monks which were assembled whether they knew of any monk who had ten qualities which he considered particularly important. And these qualities that he mentioned were did they know of anyone who had few wishes and also taught that to his fellow monks, one who was easily contented and also taught that, one who lived secluded and also aloof from society doesn't necessarily mean that one can't live with anybody. Seclusion can be in the mind and from the senses, and we'll discuss that in detail. And aloofness doesn't necessarily mean that one separates oneself. It means that one isn't disturbed by others. One who had perfected his virtue and taught that. One who was very energetic and also taught about that. One who had perfected his concentration and taught that. One who had perfected his wisdom, his insight. One who had experienced liberation and also understood it and was able to teach it. One who would inform his fellow monks and all those people who would listen to him, rouse them, encourage them, urge them along those lines. And all the monks were agreeing that they knew one like that. And his name was Punyamantani Putta. Putta means son, was the son of Mantani, and his monk name was Punya. They all said, this particular monk really had all those qualities. And Sariputta, who was the Buddha's right-hand disciple, immediately, who was present, immediately thought, I should like to meet that particular person. If they all agree that he has these wonderful qualities, must be really worthwhile having a discussion with such a person. But he didn't say anything at that time because he didn't want to interrupt. So then the Buddha went to a certain place, the Jeta Grove, Anatapindika's monastery. This is a very famous place in the Pali Canon. The Buddha gave 
spent 25 rains retreats there, so he gave many discourses there. And because they were all orally transmitted, many of the discourses start out with telling where they took place, so that one can, those that were present, can check up and see whether they were correctly transmitted. And that's why the discourses so often start with, Thus have I heard, Evam me sotam, because they're orally transmitted until they were written down at the Third Council of Arahants. And with that, Thus have I heard, is often connected the place and the people who were present. So the Buddha went to the Jeta Grove, Anatapindika's Park, which has a very nice story about it which I'll tell you briefly. Anatta Pindika was a millionaire who was utterly devoted to the Buddha. And he wanted to buy him a place for his first monastery. Because the Buddha until that time, with his disciples, was wandering. He didn't have a fixed abode. So he looked around and he finally found a beautiful mango grove, which he thought was very suitable for a monastery for the Buddha. And he found out that this mango grove belonged to a man named Prince Jeta. So he went to him and asked him whether he wanted to sell it. But Prince Jeta was not interested in selling it, and he said no. And then Anathapindika went again and again. And when he had been there the third time, Prince Jeta became a little greedy. And he thought, well, if he wants it that badly, I can ask a really high price. And so he said, all right, I'll sell it to you if you cover every inch of ground with a golden coin. So Anathapindika, being extremely rich, said, all right, I'll do that. So he had his servants bring wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow with golden coins. And he covered every inch of ground until there was a little space left, a square. Maybe as big as this area here. And he had run out of coins. And so Prince Jeta said, all right, I'll give you a discount. It's okay. So he got the mango grove. And then he spent another small fortune on building kutis for the Buddha and his disciples and furnishing them with the necessary equipment. And then the Buddha moved in there. Until this date, which is two and a half thousand years later, the place is still called Anatta Pindika's monastery, because Anatta Pindika bought it and furnished it. And Prince Jeta, who had been until that time totally disinterested in anything the Buddha had to say, never heard him before, did go to listen and became quite impressed with the teaching and then gave a... Um, like a 
doorway, an, an entrance way to that monastery, a beautiful archway, and they had that built. And so we find many suttas that take place in the Jeta Grove, in Anatta Pindika's monastery. And Buddha went there, and Punya Mantani Buddha heard that he went there, and also went. And when he came, the Buddha gave him a, a discourse to this one monk, because he knew now that this was such an excellent person. And meanwhile, Sariputta had asked where to find this excellent person, and had been told that they were at the Jetago. So he went there also. And as he went there, he saw that Punya Mantaniputta had gone what is called for the day's abiding, which means a day's meditation. And so, of course, he didn't want to disturb Punya, the Venerable Punya, so he also went to meditate. And the story says that they went to the root of a tree, each one. Now, the root of a tree in India, in that particular instance, when you go to meditate, means buttress roots. Any one of you who's been in India has seen them. They are above the ground, and they are about three feet high, and they form a little, like a little room, which you can sit in. It's small, but it's just big enough to sit in. And then the tree itself forms the roof over your head. It's very lovely to sit in there if the weather is nice. It's always shady and cool. So this is what the Buddha meant when in his discourses he often says, I have given you all the instructions to become enlightened. Go and meditate at the root of trees. This is the root. It's like having a little kuti. So they both went to meditate, Sariputta and Punyamantani Putta. And when the evening came, and when Punyamantani Putta came out of meditation, Sariputta went over to him and said that he would like to ask him some questions. And Punyamantani Putta said that was fine. So Sariputta asked him, is the holy life lived under the Buddha? And Punyamantani Putta said, yes, friend, it is. Now monks amongst themselves used to call each other friend. And so then Sariputta went on and said, well, then if that is so, is it lived for the purpose of purification of virtues? And Punya said no. And then he went on and said, well, is it then lived for the purpose of purification of the mind? And he said no. Is it lived for the purpose of purification of view? And he said, no. Is it lived for the purpose of overcoming doubt of what is true and what isn't? And he said, no. Is it lived for the purpose of the knowledge and vision of what is the past and what is not the past? And he said, no. Is it lived for the purpose of knowledge and vision of what is the way? And he said, no. 
Is it lived for the purpose of knowledge and vision? He said, no. So I put, I said, well now, look, I've given you all the possibilities and you're saying no to everything. What is it lived for, this holy life? And he said, well, it's lived for the purpose of attaining Nibbana without clinging. And so I put, I said, oh, I see. Well then, he said, is it lived for the purpose of the purification of virtue, which means then Nibbana without clinging? And he said, no. And then he went through the whole lot again and got no as an answer every time. So when he came to the end and said, well, is it then lived for the purpose of the purification of knowledge and vision? Is that Nibbana without clinging? And Punya again said no at the very end. Then Saiputta said, well, now, I really don't know. What is it now? So then Punya Mantani Putta said, an intelligent person can easily understand with a simile. I will give you a simile. And the simile was this. King Persenity, who lives in Kosala, wants to go from his palace to Sakita, to a different palace. So in order to do that, he gets a coach. And with that coach, he goes a little ways. Then the horses are tired, and he gets a second coach. And then he goes a little ways. And then he gets a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one, and a sixth one. And with the seventh coach, he comes to the entrance of the palace at Saketa. And then if he was asked, did this coach bring you from your palace in Kosala to your palace in Saketa, he would have to say, if he was to say the truth, that seven coaches had brought him, each one a little way, and the last one had taken him to the entrance. And this is exactly, Punya said, the same way with the purification path which you have mentioned. And Saiputta said, that's an excellent answer. That is really wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, he said, it is wonderful that we have such a monk amongst us. And then Punya Mantani Putta said, and what is your name? And he said, well, I'm sorry, Putta. And then Punya Mantani Putta became a little bit um, shy and said, well, if I had known that you were questioning me, I wouldn't have said all this, because Sari Putta was known to be the Buddha's right-hand man, so to say, and was usually the one who answered all the questions. But in any case, what has come out of that conversation is a seven-point purification system which takes us from where we're at now to Nibbana. Nice if you can do it. It's all written up in about three and a half pages in a book. It might take us a little longer to do it than to read it or to talk about it. But at least, and this is the beauty of the Buddha's teaching, we have a detailed 
explanation and instruction of every step on the way. And that is the most wonderful thing that one can get. We don't have to fantasize. We don't have to imagine what it would be like if, or if one couldn't do it in another way. If we really want to have that inner experience of freedom and liberation, of feeling totally at ease, without feeling ever threatened or rejecting or rejected, all we have to do is follow the instructions. It's not an easy thing to do to follow instructions, and we will find out why it's not so easy. The first thing that we're going to talk about is actually the second step of this. I'm not going to start with the purification of virtue, which is the first step, because we'll come to that in a little while. I'm going to start with what is called the purification of mind. Now, the purification of mind is concentration. The whole of the Buddha's teaching is divided into three parts. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila is virtue, Samadhi is concentration, and Panya is wisdom or insight. And, of course, they're built on, upon each other. However, we have to practice all of them. Because each one helps the other. If we were to wait until our virtue is perfect, we might never get around to meditating in this lifetime. If we were to wait until our concentration is perfect, till we got any insight, we might have to wait more than one lifetime. So we'll practice all three. And I'll start talking about the second one, the purification of mind, because this is what we need to do to start out with, and then we'll find out about the rest of all these um, steps. Why is it called purification of mind when we sit down to meditate? What's the connection? One second of concentration is one second of purification. And whether you're going to become concentrated for any length of time or not, will have immediate benefits just by sitting down to meditate. It purifies the mind because at the time of concentration it is impossible to have any negativity in the mind. It's as simple as that. And even if it's only one second, it's going to be more than one second. But whatever it is, it purifies. And that moment of purification would not have been available if we hadn't sat down to meditate. The more we build up the concentration, the more we have automatic purification. 
which has to be supported, of course, in daily living. But that automatic purification is like an automatic washing machine. It just works. We don't have to do anything other than turn it on, the concentration. So this is the very, very important aspect of meditation, which no matter how much concentration happens, some of it will happen. The other immediate benefit is the fact that sitting down to meditate is the right intention. And karma, o monks, I declare, is intention. So, if we sit down and wanting to meditate, Having the right intention, we're making good karma. Just by sitting down. We don't even have to get concentrated. That's the next step. The intention itself already makes good karma. Now this is something to remember every time you sit down to meditate. Because it will soothe the mind. It will give the mind an uplifting uplifted feeling it will make the mind more buoyant it knows I'm making good karma with this it's not that kind of um, dragging feeling oh I can't concentrate oh my knees are hurting oh I wish we had uh, something else for lunch not none of that I'm making good karma just by sitting down besides the good karma making and the purification system, which are actually identical. Any good karma we make is purifying. And this enormous commentary which I mentioned to you earlier on this particular sutta, which contains all the details, is called the path of purification, the Visuddhimagga. And this path of purification is the whole of the teaching. We have to see it as that. Because if we don't see meditation as a purification system, we're missing the point. We can't expect to keep everything going the way it was and add meditation on top of it. It doesn't work. It never will. Not a, doesn't have a chance. It has to be a purification system where other things eventually, gradually, slowly fall away. Besides those two benefits, we have a third and a fourth and even a fifth benefit. The third benefit is that we counteract something that we all suffer from. It's the third hindrance. It's called floss and torpor. Floss in the mind, torpor in the body. Everybody suffers from that, and that's why energy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It needs, needs this 
stretching needs countermeasures. So every time we sit down to meditate with the intention to actually do it, we're going against this natural instinct of sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness, if you like, the same thing. The laziness which we all have and the drowsiness in the mind which results from that. So this is already an enormous benefit. This third hindrance of laziness and drowsiness is compared by the Buddha to being in prison. We are sitting inside the prison of mind and body and can't expand. We can't go out. We can't extend ourselves because we're sitting in there wanting to be left alone, just wanting our sensual pleasures or just wanting to have quiet, just wanting to fall asleep or whatever it may be. So we're counteracting that. So we're arousing energy. That's our third benefit. And the fourth and fifth benefit come from a way that I will tell you to meditate which brings very important results. Namely, that as you meditate and you have distracting thoughts and they are quite massive enough to intrude upon the meditation to label them. Not just thinking, thinking. We all know we are thinking, thinking. We've been thinking for years on end, from morning to night, and dreaming from night to morning. We've got to give it a name, finally. Now, the labeling brings the following benefits. First of all, we get to know our thought patterns. Because we're going to find that we're going to use the same labels over and over again. And we're going to get tired of them. We also find that the mind is unreliable, that the thoughts are not justifiable, that they're very often the label nonsense would fit. <laughs> and when we actually have enough of honesty to do that and carry that over into daily life, we will no longer be so tempted to believe everything we're thinking. And the minute we're no longer so tempted to believe all that, we're much easier to get along with. And also, we won't have to act upon every thought. We won't have to say it, we won't have to do it, because we know already that most of it is just a thought, nothing else. It has arisen and it goes away again. And it hasn't got any real significance. Now that, of course, does not apply to the thoughts we have in daily life which are concerned with making a living, with answering the telephone, writing a letter, or even reading a book. But it has to do with all the thinking that we do when we react, our reactive thinking when something is happening and we'll react to it. 
So we take this labeling with us into daily life. In the meditation, the labeling means that we label whatever happens and substitute the thought with the attention on the breath. In daily living, we substitute the unwholesome thought with the wholesome. The same action of substitution. But, in one case, it's every thought with their meditation subject, and in daily life, it's the unwholesome. Now, how do we know what's unwholesome? Everybody knows. It doesn't feel good. It's as simple as that doesn't make us feel good, doesn't make anybody else feel good. And no matter how much we try to excuse it, justify it, run rings around it and say, well, it's all right this time, it just doesn't feel good. The Buddha talked about hiriotapa, shame and fear, which it means nothing else except our own conscience. We've all got it. It talks quite loudly. We have to be a little bit honest to ourselves, but that's not so difficult. We don't have to tell anybody else. We just keep it to ourselves. So we have the immediate benefit of the ability to substitute. And if we use that ability in our meditation and then take it with us into daily life and actually do it, substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome, we have changed our life. Immediately. The Buddha calls it the supreme efforts. We uh, will talk about them in more detail. But because I want you to label, I want to explain it now. Labeling means the following. You look at it and say, future, past. Planning, hoping, disliking, remembering, worrying, restless. The first one that comes to mind is the right one. You don't have to search for a better one. It's okay. Just the one that it is. And of course, as I said before, many times, nonsense will do. Or fantasy. Or not necessary. You'll see yourself. When you do that, it's only necessary to do it if the thought is massively intruding. In other words, takes you away from the meditation. If the thoughts, if you have practiced long enough, so that the thoughts which arise are like clouds in the background, not necessary to label, because that will then, the labeling will intrude. But if you find yourself going off on a tangent because some thought came to mind and then the whole storyline starts rolling off, then, of course, the labeling is important. And you will find that either future or past also fits. Because what is happening right now? Nothing except sitting and breathing. Nothing else is happening. Nothing at all. So we have another immediate benefit if we actually keep the mind on the breath. We learn to be in the here and now, in the present.
when we have a thought which is either future or past it will be very helpful if we label it like that and immediately recognize that the past is nothing but a memory never to happen again just as it was then and the future doesn't exist when it does exist it's called the present tomorrow never comes when it does it's called today it cannot arrive so it's useless to think about the future the only usefulness for the future is making a shopping list that's about the best we can do with the future the rest is all happening now. And this is one of the great absurdities and difficulties that humanity has. Most people try to think about life instead of living it. The only way we can ever live it is when we're in this one moment. Because when that moment is gone, the next moment, the next moment, we've missed them all if we've been thinking about it. But when we are in it, we're experiencing them. And this is exactly what we try to learn through meditation, to stop thinking and to start experiencing. So we come to the point where we start experiencing the breath. Every time the mind thinks, it's no longer experiencing. And we can tell the difference. It's very interesting. It's nothing to be blamed. It's nothing to be shunned. But it's very interesting to know the difference. When we watch the breath and we actually experience it, we are in the moment experiencing that which is our life. Without that breath, we wouldn't be alive. That's life, being alive. When we start thinking, then we're trying to organize life, which it's unorganizable. It just keeps going. It's all going on out there. We're sitting here. Nobody is worried about it, that we're not in it. It's quite all right. So we can be away from it even with our thoughts not just with our bodies we've got to let all that stuff out there go it's physically gone now it's got to go mentally also there are several crutches we can use for the breath now if you have used the breath in a certain way for years on end and are satisfied that you are actually concentrated on it which is something I cannot tell from your pieces of paper then by all means continue but if it hasn't been that wonderful then do it a different way and do it the way that will appeal to you from the different choices I'm going to give you. 
If you have already me uh, meditated for a long time and you're used to watching the breath at the nostrils without any crutches and you are satisfied that your concentration is steady, by all means, go ahead. But if not, the first option is counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No further than ten. Every time you have a thought and you give it a label, back to one. Otherwise, the mind's going to start telling stories. Where was I? Four? Five? Must have been at least nine. <laughs> uh, that doesn't work either. So, back to one. It doesn't matter. Nobody knows about it anyway. It really doesn't matter. And whether one is concentrated or not is not really the point at this time. The point is the awareness of what's going on. When that awareness becomes so sharp, the concentration comes anyway. So, there's no achievement syndrome, that's what I'm trying to tell you. It doesn't matter whether you were at 10 or at 4, it really doesn't matter. We don't have to have any particular achievement. If you don't like numbers, but prefer words, use love on the in-breath and peace on the out-breath, or one of those two. Or if you know a nicer word, use it. It doesn't matter. If you're strongly committed to Buddhism, Buddho is a very excellent word. Bud on the in-breath, ho on the out-breath. It fits beautifully with the breath. But it's only usually good for those people who are have a, for, the, for whom this has meaning. Because if the word has meaning, the mind is more likely to stay with it. Otherwise, love on the in-breath, love on the out-breath, or love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath, or only peace. That's fine too. Choices. Third possibility. If you have a visual mind, if you think in pictures and dream in technicolor, that's a visual mind. Imagine that the breath is a wave, like an ocean wave, that comes in, gets smaller as it comes in, goes out and expands. Give it a beautiful color, silver, gold, white, whatever you like. If you have that kind of mind, that will help you to stay with the breath. These are all crutches which, when you feel that you don't need them, you drop them and just stay with the breath. Most people need them for the first one or two days anyway because there's been, the world has been impinging on the mind and it's very difficult to drop it all immediately. And another possibility is the sensation. As the breath comes in, there's a sensation at the nostrils, the wind of the breath touches, and very often there's a sensation in the 
forehead, sensation coming down the throat, into the lungs, even further down to the stomach. It's not looking for the sensation. It's just paying attention to whatever sensation there is in the awareness with the breath coming in, with the breath going out. As it comes in, there's a feeling of expansion. As it comes out, there's a feeling of contraction. These sensations are usually available to everyone. There's another possibility. And that is very helpful for people who have very little concentration practice so far or concentration results. Watching beginning, middle and end of the breath and counting one, two, three. One, two, three on the in-breath, one, two, three on the out-breath with watching beginning, middle and end. So you've got five choices. Pick one and stay with it. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath, no further than ten. Word, picture, sensation, or beginning, middle, end. Pick one and give it a chance. Because if you switch from one to the next, you'll find that the next one doesn't work either. And you probably know your own mind well enough to know which one of those is most suitable. Whether you like words, pictures, sensations, numbers. The labeling I have already explained. Now there's one other thing. And that's feelings. In the sitting position, very often unpleasant feelings. Knees, back, neck, whatever. In this practice, there isn't a kind of um, compulsion. You must sit like this and not move. There is only, I'm training myself. So what we're after is awareness, knowing what is happening. And I'll explain to you what is happening, and I'd like you to become aware of it yourself, because whatever I say only has very little influence and very little impact until you have seen it yourself. Then, of course, it's an aha experience. Aha. Uh -huh. That's what the Buddha said. I see. <laughs> okay, we let's say we're getting a pain in the right knee. Okay? Become aware of this. Touch contact. It's the first thing that's happening. You wouldn't have the pain if there wasn't the touch contact. So, from touch contact, from any sense contact, this case touch, comes feeling, automatic. It can be one of three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We can forget about the neutral because we think it's pleasant. 
because it's at least not unpleasant. So, and besides, we don't pay attention to it. So we have either pleasant or unpleasant. That we have. Now, in this case, we let's say we have unpleasant. Next thing that happens is perception, saying pain. And next thing that happens is reaction. I don't like it. I should have sat on a chair. It's bad for my blood circulation. <laughs> Why do they have to sit on cushions? And so on. The whole story line that we have. Becoming aware. What goes on in the mind. Now this works so quickly that we have already moved before we have noticed what happened. So next time. Touch contact, feeling, perception, reaction, which are the four parts of mind which we will discuss in more detail. But at least they come to the fore in every unpleasant feeling. So not the automatic reaction of moving in any direction, but the eventual automatic reaction of watching the whole process. When we watch that whole process which goes on in us, we eventually come to the point where we realize that we're pre-programmed. And then we don't like that anymore. And then we say, well, that's not necessary. I'll have to stop that program. But first we have to become aware of this program that's going on. So, sense contact, touch, feeling, perception, naming it, and then the reaction. So when the reaction has come, which says, oh, I don't like this, this is very uncomfortable, then taking the mind off it and putting it back on the meditation subject. Everybody can do that at least for a moment, twice, three times, four times. And we'll learn from that, first of all, after having the awareness of this four-part process, we'll learn from that that when we take our attention off something, it no longer exists. The most interesting experiment. We are the laboratory. And we're making all these experiments. So let's say we've done this three or four times successfully, which gives a great deal of self-confidence. See, I can do it. I can take my mind off it. And then the mind says, well, this is all very nice and all very well, but I can't sit like that any longer. Well, that's fine too. Then move gently, slowly, and admit to yourself that you've been conquered by an unpleasant feeling. It's fine. We are constantly conquered by unpleasant feelings in our daily lives. There's absolutely no reason why we should change from this afternoon to this evening. But we've got to know it, finally, that this is what's happening. Actually know it. Because then we will make, make a great deal of difference within ourselves. That maybe we think, well, this unpleasant feeling next time doesn't have to conquer me. I will conquer it. But, <clears throat> and this I want you to be very sure about, it does not mean sitting 
clenching one's teeth, trying to prove to oneself and maybe somebody else that one can actually sit through. That creates dislike in the mind. That's nothing but dislike of the unpleasant feeling which one is trying to conquer through a compulsion in oneself. It has to be seen as something which has arisen, which one can let go of. Only then does the mind become soft and accepting and can take this or that with the equal equanimity. As long as it dislikes the unpleasant feeling, what's going to try and prove to oneself that one can even with that dislike and with that unpleasant feeling sit, it doesn't help anything. All it helps is possibly that one doesn't want to meditate anymore because it's painful. Meditation is not supposed to be painful. The Buddha said, one has to be comfortable in mind and body. That doesn't mean that one has to indulge oneself, but it also doesn't mean that one has to have the greatest of discomfort. We can let go if we're able to, or we can be conquered by it, either way. And eventually, we conquer through the mind that we have total equanimity towards whatever feeling arises. So you have to be sure in your mind what's going on when the unpleasant feeling arises. Watch it, be aware of it, know it. That's all that counts. The important aspects are choosing one of the possibilities of using the breath, labeling, and watching the arising of the unpleasant feeling and knowing how we react. These are the three parts of the meditation. Now, before we will actually do it, at least for a short period this evening, any questions? A buddho, yes. It means to the Buddha. So the breath is to the Buddha. And it's, uh, it is uh, because of the two syllables, it's very useful. Because ho is like breathing out. Yes, it means to the Buddha. Anything else? I'd like to suggest one more thing to you for the meditation. And that is the following. When you start, think of how fortunate you are that you have such an opportunity. The Buddha said that one can get enlightened in seven days. (laughs) Just to have that feeling of gratitude and joy that you have 
taken the, this opportunity and how fortunate that you have it. And then feel some love towards your breath. It means your life. Without it, no life. Actually have that feeling of loving connection with the breath. Every time the mind starts running off and back to where you were this afternoon or whatever, think of, this is my life. I'm giving this some love. It brings the mind back and it helps the mind to have some quiet and peace in it. See, now when one meditates, one would like to become peaceful, but it's a catch-22. One's got to be peaceful in order to meditate. So we have to use all possibilities which are available to us in order to give the mind already a bit of a boost before it starts. So first think of your own good fortune and then have that loving feeling towards the breath. And then pick one of those choices and use it. And then the labeling, but only if it, the thought is massive. Huh? If it's like a cloud, never mind. And the feeling. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And out of the center of the lotus flower comes a golden stream of light which fills you from head to toe with warmth and light and joy and peace. And it surrounds you with love, a sense of well-being, and of ease.
And now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the person dearest you in this room and fill him or her with the warmth from your heart, with light, joy and peace and surround him or her with your love giving that person a sense of protection and well-being And now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to everyone here and fill everyone from head to toe with the warmth from your heart, with light and joy and peace and surround everyone with your love. Now think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with gratitude, with warmth, with joy and with peace. Surround and embrace them with your love. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill them with warmth, 
light, this joy and peace. Surround and embrace them with your love and your gratitude that they're part of your life. Without expecting that they return the same to you. Think of all your good friends. Let them arise before your mind's eye. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with the warmth and depth of your friendship. It's your gratitude they are your friends and surround them with your love Think of your neighbors at home, people you work with, acquaintances, people you meet on the street, in shops, on public transport, postmen, salesmen. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all of them, letting them all be part of your heart, just as they are part of your life. Fill them with the warmth and friendship with peacefulness. Surround them with your love.
think of any one person in your life whom you may find difficult to love, with whom you may have had some difficulty. and recognizes as a blockage in your own heart. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person too, full of forgiveness, warmth, understanding, and a feeling of togetherness. and embrace that person with love. Open your heart as wide as possible and let the golden stream of light flow out with love and peace, joy to people near and far. First those that live around here in the houses, in the village and then further, people further away, to the next villages and towns, <coughs> to your own hometown. Let this stream of love and peace reach to all the houses, to all the hearts, of the people that you can think of. Let it flow further and further to as many places as you can think of, as much strength as this stream has coming from your heart. reaching out to people far and wide.
Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the joy that comes from loving and giving, the contentment that comes from making the right effort. Let the golden stream of light fill you from head to toe with joy and contentment and surround you with love so that you can feel at ease, well protected. quite secure. And now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, which closes its petals. And then anchor the lotus flower in your heart, so that it may become one with it. May beings everywhere have love and peace in their hearts. And the Buddha said that one has eleven benefits if one practices loving-kindness. <laughs> and the first three benefits are one goes to sleep happily, one dreams no evil dreams, and one wakes happily. I wish that this is true for all of you. I wish you a very good night. <laughs>